Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are never changing. That your word is never changing. That it is always a strong foundation for us in our faith growth and our faith journey. Lord, we thank you for who you are. That you, you don't leave us where you find us, but you are constantly changing and growing and transforming us. We thank you for the many and, and varied uh, circumstances and situations that you put us in so that we may be stretched and are, are taken out of our comfort zones, really see uh, who you are and what you want to do with us. So, Lord, we pray that you bless our time together this morning, uh, that your words may uh, become alive uh, in us uh, and be shown um, in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. About 15 years ago, uh, back in 2003, on the day before famous comedian Bob Hope was to turn 100 years old, the Sydney Morning Herald published an article about Hope's life, peppering in some funny quotes from Hope himself. Originally born Leslie, Thomas, uh, Leslie Towns Hope in London, England on May 29, 1903, Hope described his humble upbringing by saying, Four of us slept in the same bed. When we got cold, mother threw on another brother. <laughs> and in describing growing up with six brothers, that's how I learned to dance, waiting for the bathroom. Hope's career did not start out well. In fact, it wasn't until he was 35 until he started becoming successful as a vaudeville, Broadway, and movie star. About that time, Hope reminisced, those are really tough times. I wouldn't have had anything to eat if it wasn't for the stuff that the audience threw at me. During World War II, Hope's career to, uh, underwent a big change. For the next 50 years, Hope would entertain U.S. troops stationed around the world, encouraging them and bringing smiles to their faces with his comedy during extremely difficult and dangerous circumstances. For his years of service of boosting morale in the U.S. military, Hope was awarded the Congressional uh, Gold Medal by President John F. Kennedy on September 11, 1963. In response to the award that he would end up treasuring the most, Hope joked, I feel very humble, but I think I have the strength of character to fight it. <laughs> Human pride is one of the, the hardest parts of our residual sin nature that we will fight up until the day we die. Likewise, true humility will be one of the hardest parts of our spirit-given nature to cultivate and have grown in us. As Paul finishes up the specific topic he's been addressing in his first part of this letter to the Corinthians, he points to the only solution to the division that has been reported to him. And that is a large dose of humility. That's what, that's what he prescribes. As we work our way through this morning's passage, our attention will hopefully be turned to the utmost importance of humility as our way of life, not just in certain Situation. So the, point, the first point that we come to in our, in our message this morning is the review. We only have two uh, this morning, uh, and we're starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, so if you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor or look in the table of contents. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we're going to start out with verse 1, and we read, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul starts out this verse by saying, let, us, let a man regard us in this manner. 
Well, in what manner is he talking about? The whole manner he's been talking about since chapter 1 is the whole manner that he's referring to here. Here he hearkens all the way back to uh, chapter 1, verse 17, when he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be, would not be made void. Paul's reference to not being sent to baptize does not mean that he held baptism in low regard, but rather what the Corinthians were doing with his baptisms and Apollos' baptisms of people and possibly Cephas' or Peter's baptisms of people. That's what he's holding in low regard here. If you remember uh, from our whole series on this beginning part of, of 1 Corinthians so far, there was a situation going on in the church at Corinth that was precipitating incredibly harmful division within that church. The problem was that people were dividing themselves up into many camps of fierce loyalty towards one church leader over another. Specifically, the Apostle Paul and the follow-up evangelist named Apollos. Being baptized by one of these men was being used in that church as an even greater source of arrogance. Different church members were going around saying, Well, I was baptized by Apollos. Or even making up that they were baptized by Paul. Because we read that he didn't baptize very many people. And he outright says that. So by Paul noting this in 117, he's saying, You people have got it all wrong. I was not sent to you to be used as a source of division among you, but to merely bring the gospel message to you. That's all I came to do. And I didn't even do that well. Thus proving that it's the power of Christ that saved you, not me, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul then spent the next couple of chapters explaining why their salvation had nothing to do with either him or Apollos, and therefore why their division was completely pointless and opposite to what they thought was actually very destructive to the church. The specific topic was just a small part of God's whole grand plan for salvation. That the entire way it was designed was to be impossible to stumble across through the height of human wisdom or human convention. It had to be spiritually revealed through the Holy Spirit. In fact, everything about it was foolishness to the world's wisdom, weakness, and made absolutely no sense. Because that's the way that God designed it from eternity past. Have you ever heard... Someone used the phrase, oh, you just use your faith as a crutch, right? You've heard that before. To that person, your faith makes no sense and is pointless to your personal growth. In reality, you could respond, absolutely, it's a crutch. I would not be able to stand without it. And more than that, I have nothing to stand on without it. You are right. In chapter 2, Paul makes it personal by saying, I didn't come to you with human wisdom because, first of all, that wouldn't have done anything for you since the gospel must be believed through spiritual revelation. And second of all, it's only the power of the gospel that saved you. Any words that Paul did use were not powerful unto salvation on their own, for Paul openly admits in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, not the wisdom of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, 
Not in some carefully crafted, convincing argument, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Paul then flat out follows that with this next logical statement according to God's design of salvation. Since our salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God, God's establishment and initiation of it, God's revelation of it to us personally through the Holy Spirit, God's transformation of us through the Holy Spirit, and God's preservation of us until the very end through the Holy Spirit, then he logically comes to this conclusion. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Again, the Corinthians only believed the gospel message that Paul and then Apollos brought because of the opportunities that God provided, God orchestrating that their hearts were ready to hear it. And so he logically comes to this conclusion. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. It all has to do with God. It's God who causes the growth. That's the manner that Paul wants the Corinthians to regard both him and Apollos with. Not to place any of them on pedestals and compare and contrast their strengths and weaknesses and cause division based on human loyalty. Rather, to regard them, as he once again says in chapter 4, verse 1, as mere servants of Christ. Christ is the only one they should be putting up on a pedestal and applauding and rooting their steadfast loyalty in. As one biblical scholar points out, though, rather than a reiteration of what Paul has already written in chapter 3, verse 5, when he refers to them as servants, there's an expansion of that that Paul wants to get across in chapter 4, verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 5, we read, What then is Apollos and what is Paul's servants? through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Here, the word for servant has the meaning of one who is running an errand or serving someone else by going and doing what someone else wants them to do. It's the same word we derive deacon from, diakonos, a servant who simply goes and does what God tells them to do. In chapter 4, verse 1, the word for servant is not just referring to someone who goes and does something that someone else tells them to do. Anybody can do that, and anybody can do that even, even under duress. Rather, it, it, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 is stressing the mindset of subordination and adhering to a sense of responsibility to a superior. That kind of rubs us the wrong way as Americans, doesn't it? But that's what Paul is getting across in chapter 4, verse 1, stressing the mindset of subordination and adhering to a sense of responsibility to a superior. In other words, while the word for servant is just merely referring to one who does another bidding, regardless of mindset or attitude in chapter 3, verse 5, the word for servant in chapter 4, verse 1, stresses that mindset of the servant not only doing his master's bidding, but doing so out of a humble subordination and responsibility to that master. So what Paul is ironically saying here in, in, in 4.1 is, listen, you guys, you've been spending so much time bickering over which human minister to remain staunchly loyal to, when in reality, we as those human ministers don't even see ourselves that way. 
All we see ourselves is, is mere servants who do what our master Jesus tells us to do, but we do it with a mindset of complete subordination and responsibility to him. The prideful attitude the Corinthians were indulging was in complete opposition to the humility that Paul was seeking to have more and more of. Because of his mindset of humble subordination to his master, Jesus, he took being a steward of Jesus' message very seriously. The last thing he wanted to do was tarnish, abuse, or manipulate that precious treasure of the gospel message that was so lovingly entrusted to him. That mindset fed right into what Paul says next in verse 2 of chapter 4. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Because Paul saw himself as completely subordinate to and in wholehearted responsibility to Jesus, his stewardship of Jesus' message was to be done with all trustworthiness and honesty. Paul's already gone through how his trustworthiness of the word of God will be evaluated through fire when he stands before Jesus in chapter 3 verses 10 through 15 with a warning to those in Corinth in chapter 3 verses 16 through 17 who are only building with pride and arrogance and causing this division that he's addressing. That's why Paul can say with confidence verse 3 but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. He says it doesn't matter at all to me what you guys think of me. It doesn't matter at all. Whether it's with boastfulness for my supposed human strengths or with frustration over my supposed human weaknesses. I don't care. As one biblical scholar pointed out in verse 3, Paul even admits that he doesn't even trust himself in his own limited humanness to be a good judge of himself. He's not worried about that. He goes on to say in verse 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul says, I'm not aware of anything grievous that needs correction, but that in and of itself is not enough to acquit myself. Paul is not worrying himself about what others think of him or even what he thinks of himself because he knows ultimately none of it matters. Why? What does matter? Second part of verse 4 and into verse 5. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul's referring to himself here, but there's a lesson here for all of us. It does not matter what unbelievers think about your faith in Jesus. It does not matter. We already know that if they're viewing it with human and worldly wisdom, it will always appear foolish to them. We already know that if they're viewing it with human and worldly wisdom, that the logical and natural ultimate response to God's design for salvation will always be a vilification, derision, and outright hatred of it from those who only live according to human and worldly wisdom. That will always be the ultimate response. 
Our brothers and sisters around the world deal with that vilification, derision, and outright hatred on a daily basis. They're not surprised by it. It's a way of life for them. And as the world continues to go the way that it does, we in America should not be surprised when we start feeling the effects of that more and more. Likewise, it doesn't matter what others, even believers, think of our motives. If the things we do are for God's glory and God's glory only, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about what, you, what you're doing. While it shouldn't be, if it happens, it doesn't matter if we're misunderstood, judged, or maligned. And lastly, it doesn't even matter what we think about ourselves. It does not matter. It does not matter how bad we think we are. It does not matter how good we think we are. It does not matter how with it we think we are. It does not matter how many or few spiritual gifts we think we have. It does not matter how weak or strong, uneducated or learned, sinful or righteous we think we are. None of that matters. Like the great Apostle Paul, we don't even have the right or holiness or amount of spiritual wisdom to even judge ourselves. You know who is constantly trying to make you think that you do? The enemy of our souls. Why? Because he knows that if he can keep our focus on ourselves and how we think we measure up or don't measure up, who are we not focused on? And he knows that if he can keep our minds focused on what we're doing or not doing for God, what are we not focused on? What the Holy Spirit is doing in us and in others and what he's redeeming in our lives and in the lives of others. Because at the end of everything, none of what we or anyone else thinks of us is going to matter a cent. It's only going to be what Jesus thinks of us. He's the only one who, as verse 5 concludes, will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And what will be the end result of everything having to do with our true motives for how we lived as believers in Jesus? Condemnation? Rebuke? Thank God's got a list that he's just going <laughs> to... Ten whippings for each thing that you did here. Now, we read here in verse 5, the end result will be praise from God himself for everything we did with pure motives for his glory. What's going to happen to everything else? It's just going to burn up. Paul has been using himself as the illustration for his whole point, and now he turns back to the troublemakers in Corinth. We had the review. What Paul has been leading up to as he's concluding this section of this letter. And secondly, the revelation. Verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Keep that in mind. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. As one biblical scholar noted, Paul has been, not manipulatively, but ingeniously, utilizing a tactic to get his point across to the Corinthians. This whole time, from chapter 1, verse 12, onward till this point, 
He has only been referring to himself and Apollos to get his point across. Here's what I mean. Flip back with me back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Here's where Paul introduces this topic that he will address. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where he introduces this. That you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. That's the introduction. But after that, Paul very well could have started calling specific people in the church out as instigators of this division. We know that Paul did that elsewhere with other people in other churches. He could have very well done the same thing here. He naturally could have outright lit into the names of specific people. But Paul, in the spirit, chose to handle the situation a lot more delicately. He knew how explosive this situation already was. He knew, as he alluded to in chapter 3, verse 17, that the church was already on the cusp of complete implosion. That's why he wrote to them as soon as he could in the first place, this letter. However, let's stop for a second. Imagine with me. As we know people as well as Paul did, And we know the natural reactions of people as well as Paul did. People have not changed in thousands of years. What do you think there was a very real possibility of happening if Paul started pointing fingers directly at those who were instigating the division right off the bat? He would have sent the church right over the edge of destruction if he started doing that. Why? Well, what was the root cause of this division? human loyalty towards one human minister over another. If Paul started pointing fingers at those responsible for the division, what would have happened? You guys know people as well as I do. Those who were entrenched in the Apollos camp or the Peter camp or some other camp would have defensively risen up in defiance and declared to Paul and to those in Paul's camp, How dare you! Instead of quelling the firestorm, Paul's accusations would have only poured gasoline on the already raging fire and burned everything down to nothing but ashes. But Paul, in the spirit, knew he had to handle everything a lot more delicately. So instead of pointing fingers at other people, Paul used himself and Apollos, who he knew were both blameless in this entire fiasco, to get his point across. Paul had enough confidence in Apollos to know that he was in complete agreement and would not take any offense to what Paul would say to prove his point in subsequent chapters. So then, to get his point across, Paul could make statements like, Some of you are saying, I am of Paul and I of Apollos. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were some who were declaring, I am of Cephas. And even bucking the whole system of church government and declaring, I am only of Christ. Instead of the emphasis on the actual perpetrators of the division, the emphasis is placed on the names of those who were supposedly the heads of these mini camps with the general word some used. And Paul could make statements like, When I came to you with the gospel, I didn't come with superior speech or with the height of human persuasive wisdom. In fact, what I did come to you with was weakness, 
fear and much trembling. That's what I did come to you with. There was nothing that exuded human strength or confidence. And Paul could make statements like, Who are even Paul and Apollos, these men you hold in great esteem and are basing these loyalties on? All we are are mere servants doing what God wants us to do with the opportunities that God gives to us. We're actually nothing when it comes down to it because any salvation and spiritual growth that happened in you is only given to you and grown in you by God himself. And lastly, here in verse 6 of our passage this morning, Paul comes right out and reveals to the Corinthians what he's been doing this entire time. He's been placing the emphasis on him and Apollos, the supposed benefactors of all this misplaced human loyalty, to illustrate to the Corinthians that just as Paul and Apollos have not exceeded what is written in the word of God regarding humility, neither should they in their arrogance. Paul does not tippy-toe around the situation as he's brutally honest with the Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and even generally warns the instigators of this division in chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. But for the most part, Paul refers to himself and Apollos in his illustration of the utmost importance of humility and the importance of humility to the church's unity. Paul concludes his rebuke toward the Corinthian church as a whole on this topic, anyways, in verse 7 to basically sum up everything he's been saying up to this point. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Who regards each of you as superior to one another based on these human loyalties? It's certainly not Apollos or me, and it's certainly not Jesus. It's been quite clear. I, I've been quite clear about all of that up to this point. So who is it? He's asking them to rack their brains here. Who are these people that are regarding you as superior? Paul asks these questions to point out the futility, emptiness, and ultimately pointless destruction that was at the heart of this division. Paul's next rhetorical question points the Corinthians back to the very basis of their salvation, that it was given to them by God and grown in them by God and preserved in them by God. Without God's grace and only God's grace, they would have nothing, just as each of us would have nothing. So what was the point of all of their human arrogance? The simple answer was nothing. Nothing at all. And to think they had something without God giving it to them was not only arrogant, but dangerous as well. That rhetorical question then flows seamlessly into his last rhetorical question in this section, putting the mirror back up to the Corinthians' faces. So logically, if there is nothing to boast about in connection with yourselves or which minister you place your loyalty in, since everything has to do with God and nothing to do with us personally or even what the minister does, what exactly do you have to boast about? Paul's already answered that rhetorical question all the way back in chapter 1. And he said, no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. Not anybody else's doing, not even your own doing. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. 
Paul's solution to one of the problems in Corinth, along with his strategy for addressing it, was humility. And in reality, it's the solution and strategy for addressing every situation we face in life. Humility, letting go of pride and self-centeredness will smooth over most conflicts. That's not my thought. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. Thinking you have anything to do with your salvation, whether it's a perceived functionality that aids your salvation or a dogging sin that will take that away from you, is still a self-centered mentality. Humility forces us to see our salvation has literally nothing to do with us because God doesn't look at our righteousness or lack of righteousness when he justifies us. God only looks at Jesus' righteousness that it has been transferred over to us. It has nothing to do with any righteousness or lack of righteousness on our behalf. He only looks at Jesus' righteousness that's been transferred over to us. Likewise, while we may be blessed more for obeying God and following his will, whether we are doing that or lacking in it does not change how much he loves us. His love for us is not based on how much we please him or disappoint him. His love is based on himself and the new covenant he established with us through the sending of his son to the cross. God is not going to break the new covenant which we as believers are under because it's unconditional and based on what he does, not on what we do or not do. So as Paul has brought up time and time again throughout the beginning part of this letter, humility extends to every part of our lives. For even our basic salvation has nothing to do with us and we therefore have nothing to boast about. And from there... There's no room for pride or self-centeredness. And humility becomes a part of, our, of every area of our lives. That humility extends to church unity and to every human relationship that we have. That humility means that we live our lives for God, not for ourselves, and not focused on ourselves, but focused on His redemption of every area of our lives and telling others about that redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's conclusion of this topic that he's been focusing on and addressing and rebuking the Corinthian church for, for, for a while in these first four chapters. Lord, I pray that we would see the utmost importance of humility in our lives, that it would be the way that we live in every area of our lives, that we would hold nothing back from your redemption, hold nothing back from you growing humility in some area of our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not selfishly hoard and hold on to some area of our life that we just want to keep that pride and self-centeredness in, but Lord, that we would release that to you, that your Holy Spirit would come and redeem that and work in that and, and bring healing to that, bring humility to that. Lord, we thank you that you are a living and active God that you are changing us and transforming us and working on us each and every day. Lord, to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.